Let's pray. Our Father, we do give praise and honor and glory to your name, which you so rightly deserve. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to be together as the body of Christ this morning. Thank you for the joy of Christian fellowship. Thank you for the <clears throat> unity of heart and mind that only comes by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we thank you for the scriptures and for the book of Daniel. Thank you for the message of Gabriel to Daniel that is to give understanding. Help us as we walk through this to have our minds illumined by the Spirit, to be open to you showing us what the truth is. Lord, always humble that you have been so gracious to provide these words. And so, Lord, we give praise to your name, thanksgiving for being here, and desire to bring glory to you in all that we do. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this is week number 38 in our study in the book of Daniel, and we're over in chapter 9, and last week we got all the way through verse 23, and so this far through this chapter, remember it's happening in the first year of the reign of the Medo-Persians after Babylon had fallen, and Darius is the king, and Daniel was reading the book of Jeremiah and came to the passage that said that the captivity would last for 70 years. And so Daniel, in response to that, set aside a day for prayer. And then we've walked through his prayer of how humble he was, how he prayed that God would forgive his sins and the sins of his people and the sins of their forefathers, all according to the really prescription that was given in Leviticus 26 of what needed to happen before God would take action to restore um, his people. And so Daniel's been very specific in his prayer. He prayed that God would um, restore Jerusalem, that he would restore the sanctuary, and that he would restore the people of God. And so in the middle of that prayer, or towards the end of it, Daniel's been praying for many hours, and Gabriel comes in, the same Gabriel that we saw back in chapter 8, and interrupts Daniel's prayer. And Daniel sees him, and they begin to have this conversation. And Gabriel says, um, I've been sent by God to give you a message. And with that message, I'm also going to give you insight and understanding. So what we read that, that Gabriel says to Daniel is not given for confusion's sake. It's not given to be a riddle that has to be figured out. It's given to give insight and understanding. And so that needs to be our, our thoughts as we come to this. Even though it can be difficult, I'll admit that, um, it's not given to cause confusion is given to cause understanding. And so we need to see what we can glean out of this message. Now, we talked about it last week. There are libraries full of books that have been written about these four short verses 
that are the 70 weeks of Daniel, um, verses 24 through 27. So it's only, it's only four verses, <clears throat> but men wrangle with these words on in, endlessly. And there are many interpretations, many views, even of, both of unbelievers and believers. Um, a lot of people have different ways they think about this. Even in the uh, Christian church and people who truly believe in God, there are various interpretations of this. And I'll admit that um, we fall into the minority in the way that we interpret these because we will, as we always do through Scripture, we'll try to maintain uh, grammatical, historical, hermeneutic, and we'll try to take things literally as opposed to figuratively, although I will admit there's some figurative language in these four verses. But we'll try to maintain our hermeneutic and walk through these, believing that these um, prophecies will be fulfilled and that it's not just some allegory, it's not just some um, representation, but is more literal than anything. And we'll see that as we walk through this. A good bit of this prophecy has already been fulfilled and if it was fulfilled literally, and I believe it was, and we'll show that, then why would we think that the rest of it's not filled literally? And so I, I struggle to understand and comprehend um, all that some Christians write about this, um, because I think it's fairly straightforward. Um, but again, I fall into a small minority of believers today, and I'm okay there because uh, we have reasons and we have interpretations and we'll begin to look at some of that this morning. So what I'd like to do is just read what is known as the 70 weeks of Daniel and then we'll come back and start to walk through this passage. So beginning in chapter 9 of Daniel, verse 24, there the scripture reads, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So a lot in these verses, a lot to try and sort out. And dates are not given, but time frames are given and not the least of which is 70 weeks, which are prophesied here. We won't talk about 70 weeks this 
this week or maybe not even next week. When we get into verse 25, we'll talk about the 70 weeks, and I'll give you a, a graph that lays them out, if the Lord wills, and we'll start to talk about those 70 weeks. But we have to make it through verse 24 first. And you'll see, as we move through verse 24 today, part of it, why this is going to take us a while to walk through these four verses. So um, there's several things to be noticed in verse 24 before we actually start to look at the details that Gabriel is predicting. You notice that the 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. So this decree is not for everybody on the planet. It's for Daniel's people and Daniel's city, which would be for the Jews and for Jerusalem. So it's important to remember that as we walk through this, this is, while it affects, I believe, the whole world, this decreal is not for the whole world. It's just for the Jews. It's just for the city of Jerusalem. It's just for Judah. So it's, it narrows down, and it does have implications for the rest of the world, but the decree is not given to the whole world. Go ahead, Andy. This is Jesus standing at the foot of the temple so talking to his disciples. Right. Right. By the greatest prophet that ever lived, Jesus Christ, he agrees with Daniel that this abomination of desolation is not, um, it's not a representation of something, it's not an allegory speaking of something, but that people will literally see it with their eyes. Right, it's for the Jews and for Jerusalem and Judah. And you remember, I mean, in that, when Christ is given that in um, Matthew 24, he even says, that you ought to run when you see this. You know, don't take anything with you, just run. And that doesn't sound like an allegory to me. He says, you're going to see it, and when you see it, you need to flee. And they, do, they will. So, um, and we'll talk about that, because a lot of people will say, well, that's obviously talking about 70 AD. And I'll show why I don't believe that's true. And why that doesn't seem to match. Um, but, and, and then they say, well, that's obviously the Romans, and so that's Europe that's going to come against them. And I'll show you why I don't believe that. And I don't think that's accurate. And I think history well marks that it's not. But, you know, all those are for another day. Today we're going to try and begin verse 24. But it's important to note that this decree... This prophecy is given to the Jews and to Jerusalem. It's not for 
everybody, although it may have effect. Okay, the second thing to notice here is that this is a decree. Okay, so a decree, um, I, I guess we don't really talk about decreals today so much, but it means like a command or a dictate. And a decree is only as good as the one who makes the decree is strong and has the authority and the will to make the decree come true. I mean, I could decree all kinds of things, right? But I don't have the might and I don't have the right to make decrees about you and your life, and, and so I can't make them come true. But this is a decree that you need to think about because you have to have your reasons if you believe this is true and it's literal and it's going to happen. Why can you say that? Because who makes this decree? And you'll notice that in verse 24, it doesn't say who makes the decree. It's Gabriel who's speaking it and says it has been decreed, but he doesn't tell us who the author of the decree is. Now, you can say, well, we just assume it's God. Probably a good assumption, but you have to have your reasons why you assume it's God and not Gabriel who's making this decree, right? Because there are some who don't believe this is the decree of God. And so you have to think about this and talk about it a little bit to see if we can figure out why we think this is the decree of God. Now, I do believe that, but it's worth some investigation. And so I think we ought to look at what it says and I want to point out a couple of things. You'll notice in verse 27 that the one who is breaking his covenant that was made for a week and is wreaking havoc and brings the abomination of desolations and causes a lot of desolations, destructions, is he himself destroyed at the very end. I mean, it makes it pretty clear one that is a complete destruction, one that again is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So it's been decreed that this actor, I believe it's the prince who is to come, who's causing the abomination of desolation, who's causing desolations and destructions on the planet, is he himself decreed to be destroyed. Okay, now that kind of matches what we saw in Gabriel's previous explanation back in chapter 8. So I want to show that to you. Back in chapter 8, and you remember that the interpretation of this vision that Daniel had um, is given by Gabriel and... verse 25 of chapter 8 and he's talking about this king who is shrewd and he says and through his shrewdness he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence and he will magnify himself in his heart 
and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. But then it says, but he will be broken without human agency. So in both of these visions, the one who wreaks havoc and causes destruction and deceit is he himself broken at the end. And in this case, he's broken without human agency, which means there's not men who go and kill him. There's not men who kill him in a battle or destroy his city or anything like that. And we, we talked about this when we talked about Antiochus Epiphanes. He literally went insane because he could not defeat the Jews. And he died on his bed, a broken man, without money, even though he was still king, and there were kings to come after him, that he died for unknown reasons, is what history says. And here in scripture, we get why he died, because that was the decree of God, that that's the way he would die. So you look back up, and when Gabriel was introducing his interpretation in chapter 8, back in verse 25 of that chapter, nope, that's not right, it's 15, 8.15, you notice it says, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli. And he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing. And when he came, when I, sorry, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. And he said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of of the end. And we talked about all of this, how specific of a time that talks about, how Gabriel is there to give Daniel an understanding of what he had seen, and that he was commissioned to do so by a voice that was between the banks of the Uli. Now, if you're between the banks of a river, means you're either in the river or you're above the river right? That would be the only thing in between the banks. And I believe this is some voice that is above the water because it's audible. You can hear it. And so this would be a voice that would represent something that is supernatural. Couldn't be Gabriel because Gabriel walks around. Daniel walks around. They're both standing beside the banks of the Uli. The only thing that could be speaking, I believe, would be the voice of God. 
speaking to Gabriel, commanding him to give Daniel an understanding. Very similar to what we see over in chapter 9. Again, Gabriel says the command was given, meaning Gabriel was commanded to go and give Daniel this interpretation. Now, Gabriel is an angel. So who commands the angels? You could say, well, the archangel does, and that would probably be true, that archangels can give regular angels um, you know, orders or instructions. There is a hierarchy, apparently, that we see in scripture. But if he's commanded to go and give Daniel an interpretation of a, it says vision, we talked about that. It's more of a message. The message is from God himself because angels don't know what's gonna happen. They don't have it all laid out. They only know what God has revealed to them just as we only know what God has revealed to us. And so this message and the interpretations must be coming from God because nobody else knows them. And by the way, no one else has the might and the right to decree what is going to happen in human history except for the creator, right? The creator is always sovereign over whatever he creates. <laughs> you just can't do it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. So there's a good way to think about the decreed will of God and the revealed will of God being the word of God. But I want to just read this passage from Isaiah 11, one of our most precious Christmas passages, because you just said the word. Yes. That the Holy Spirit precisely describes about our Lord. Isaiah 11. Yeah. You can't decree precisely to your point. You cannot decree something unless you have the ability to see it, determine it, and then have the power, the might, to actually bring it about. Exactly. Which is why this has to be the decree of God, because he's decreeing what will happen in the creation in the future. And so the only one who has the right is God. The only one who has the power to do so, to make it come out as he desires, is God. Now, Daniel's already spoke about this back in chapter 2. And we've referenced this several times, but it's worth re revealing again what Daniel, you remember the, the situation. Daniel has just been given Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its interpretation. And so he's going to be able to tell the, the king what his dream was, and then he's going to be able to tell the king what it means. And so Daniel, in response, has this prayer of praise to God. 
And in the middle of that prayer, chapter 2, in verse 20, he begins to speak and says, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power, and now you have made known to me what we requested of you. So here's Daniel in the middle of recognizing that God is sovereign. Not only has he given Daniel the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, which you may remember was the great statue which predicts the five kingdoms which come till the end of the world, because the last one is the everlasting kingdom. And Daniel understands this, and he knows it, and he understands that it is God who is able to do this because it is he who changes times and epochs. Right. <laughs> why, God, why did you preserve all this Old Testament stuff that some people want to just throw out? And it is precisely this, so that we will know that he is God. Yep, and he is able. So he, and he will do what he has decreed. It's not like it's optional, because the creator has decreed what will happen in his creation. And so as we walk through these things that will happen, think about history and have we ever seen all that he says will happen here in history? And my answer would be no, which means there has to be more to come of this decreal, which is still in play today. Because this is God decreeing, the creator deciding what is going to happen in his creation, and it will happen precisely as he's decreed. Okay, so then we begin with that understanding, an understanding that Daniel 9.24, the decree is the decree of God, of the creator. And he's making this decree for his people and his city. The Jews and Jerusalem is who this applies to. Okay, so he says in verse 24, there are six specific things that have been decreed along with some actions, but these six specific things in verse 24 will be accomplished. So we need to understand what they are. He says to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. Those six things will happen when? During the 70 weeks. So let that begin to inform the way that you think about not only Daniel, but about the 70 weeks and about the tribulation, which I believe is the 70th week which means these things will be accomplished by the end of the tribulation 
for the Jews. Important to think about that because he's not talking about the everlasting kingdom. Right? The everlasting kingdom. Because if, if you parse it the way I do, there are 70 weeks. The 70th week corresponds to the seven years of tribulation. Then comes the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Then comes the judgment in the eternal kingdom. And if these things are done by the 70th week, then we're not talking about the everlasting kingdom. We're talking about when the millennial kingdom is ushered in and the tribulation ends. It's important to think about that because it should inform the way that you think about eschatology and when things happen. This is given for understanding. These things are accomplished in the 70, in the 70 weeks, not after, during. Not yet. Which is part and parcel of some of the eschatology that flies around. We are in this period and it is becoming greater and greater and, and all these things are coming to pass over time. Right. And <laughs> I mean, the predominant view today is that the millennial kingdom, the thousand years, that's spoken of in Daniel, I mean in Revelation chapter 20, began with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And that a thousand years doesn't mean a thousand years, it just means a long time. And so it's been going on for 2,200 years, and ultimately the Christians will dominate in such a way that they'll usher in righteousness on this planet which will usher in the return of Jesus Christ. That's the predominant view. I just go, really? That's true. <laughs> then we would have made some progress in the last 2,000 years. <laughs> yeah. And I'll tell you, that, that, those thoughts, that interpretation, took some pretty serious blows in the 20th century when we first had World War I, and then we had World War II, and now we're headed toward who knows what. And are things getting better or are they getting worse? And from my perspective, especially for the Christians, it seems to be getting worse, not better. But that's the predominant view. And I just go, I just shake my head at it because it doesn't make sense to me. Um, mainly because of my hermeneutic. Okay, so we'll begin this first thing that he says in verse 24. You see why it's going to take a while now, right? It's going to take a while to walk through this because I am going to be meticulous as we go through this chapter and these verses. Verse 24, so speaking to the Jews, decreals have been made, and the first thing is to finish the transgression. So a lot of questions here, right? What in the world does, which transgression are we talking about? What does it mean to finish them? Um, and so I, not knowing Hebrew myself, I did what any student would do, and I went to the um, lexical aids written by Zodiades 
which are very, very helpful. And so Zodiades says that um, this word transgression is a very significant word in the Old Testament. It's used 93 times um, as a technical term that means to deviate from the will or the law or the ordinances of God. And it's used in that way 93 times in the New Testament. The transgression that is being spoken of here is really a revolt against God and against his law and against his ordinances. And so we're not just talking about any haphazard transgression, which we would say, oh, that's just a sin, right? This is, a, this is rebellion against God and what he has specifically laid out in his law. Now, the only ones who knew that were the Jews, right? As written down by Moses in Leviticus and then again in Deuteronomy, a little bit in Exodus, of what the law was and what you could and couldn't do and what you could and couldn't eat and how you could and couldn't sacrifice and all these things that God had laid out and prescribed for his people so they would be distinct and unusual from the rest of the world and particularly blessed so that they could then transmit the message of why they had been blessed to the rest of the world, which they failed to do. So this word is specific and talks about transgressions against the law of God. Now, the word to finish, and every translation I could find I looked at, and they all say finish, but a better way to think about it is to restrain the transgression or to imprison the, transact, the transgression, meaning it's put away, it's done away with. It can no longer act as it has been acting. So this transgression of rebelling against God during these 70 weeks will be done away with specifically for the Jews, who, if you think about them today, do not practice the Mosaic Law, do not have sacrifices that they offer. Main reason being is that with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, they lost the ashes of the heifer that would be required to start the new sacrifices of the new year. So I believe those ashes still exist just in a hidden place that they will find them either just before or during the tribulation. They will rebuild a temple, which is again required for sacrifices and offerings. And they will begin to sacrifice again. Because you'll notice that in this prophecy that the grain offerings and the sacrifices are stopped. Okay, that's one of the arguments for 70 A.D., because they were stopped. 
but the rest of the stuff doesn't seem to correspond. So we'll sort this out, I promise. We'll walk through it carefully. Well, yeah, I mean, what verse 27 says is that in the middle of the week that he will break his covenant, he'll put a stop to the sacrifices, and he will bring in the abomination of desolation. So we need to put all that together and figure out when that happened. Did that happen in 70 AD is a good question. We'll answer it later. Okay, so to finish the transgression means that the rebellion of the Jews against God will cease. That they'll no longer do that. And if you look at the Jews today, they are still doing that. The only ones who have any idea that there may still be a Messiah are um, the Orthodox the rest of the Jews have given up on the idea of a Messiah. Look at Kabbalah in the United States. There is no thought about any Messiah. What is their mission as Jewish people? It is to change society for the better. That's the way Kabbalah lays it out. And so they've given up, other than the Orthodox, who believe their Messiah is still yet to come, about 15% of the Jews have given up on the Messiah, have given up on the promises of God. So they're in rebellion against God. None of them practice the ordinances. So during this 70 weeks, that must be done away with. And you go, well, does scripture say that anywhere? It's not in the tribulation, right? You go to the tribulation, you won't find that, where the Jews um, begin again to recognize God for who he is. But it is, and we read this in Ezekiel, chapter 36. So I want to turn there. And it's got to happen within the 70 weeks, right? And you remember Ezekiel 36, really beginning in 34, is, well, even before that, really, a little bit, is the, um, no, it's in, begins in the end of 34 to beginning of 35, is the establishment of the millennial kingdom. And in establishing that millennial kingdom, right at the end of the tribulation, comes this passage in 36, Ezekiel 36, that is amazing. Spirit of this age that we live in? It's the thinking of the age. Right. Right, even, you say, um, in the Jews, even in the Christian church, that it's man who is going to accomplish these things. 
we're going to usher in the return of Jesus Christ. Really? <laughs> right. Right. And, and I just go, I just, I'm sorry. <laughs> it just confuses me. Yeah, I mean, you have to think non-biblical in order to come up with this stuff. So look at Ezekiel 36, an amazing passage here, absolutely astounding. And remember, this is after God has gone through all the Jews, and he's called out the fat and the leaders and those who trampled in the water and trampled and pushed the weaker ones out of the way. He's removed them from the flock. So this is only the Jews who truly believe. This is not every single Jew. And I, I look back at what I, how I taught this five years ago, and I just wanted to cover my head. Because I said some things that you just shouldn't say. And, um, but now, as I told you, I've learned a little bit since then. Hopefully, that's always our progression, right? Yeah, you probably should. But it's getting better, I think, not worse. So chapter 36 of Ezekiel, beginning in verse 22. I just want to read this passage. This is an astounding passage. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, these are true believing Jews at the establishment of the millennial kingdom. Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. And then look at this passage of salvation. For I will take from you, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from, your, from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. No rebellion. Walking in the ordinances and statutes. New Testament salvation spoken of here, right? Take out your old heart, circumcise your heart, put in a new heart of flesh. Sprinkle you clean with water, as the Spirit talks about that imagery of washing us of our sins. Put my spirit within you, the Holy Spirit dwelling within the believer today and in the Jews in the millennial kingdom so that they will desire with a new heart and with the spirit of God within them, having been cleansed of their sins, to follow after the laws, the ordinances, and statutes of God. This is New Testament salvation to the Old Testament Jews. 
Right. And for my name, I'm not, and even, he goes on, i got to show you this. In 36, he'll come back to that. 36, um, 30, verse 32. I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. I'm going to do all these things. Take out your heart, put in a new heart, put my spirit within you, wash you clean. And by the way, I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for me, for my name's sake. Who's, who's in control here? Who's the sovereign here? It's very clear, is it not? This is putting, finishing the transgression. That's what I believe it means. It means this renewal of these true believing Jews at the beginning of the millennial kingdom puts an end to their rebellion and their revolt against God. It will go on until then. It's going on today. There's nothing in the way to make it change in the future except for what God says here. Right, it, that's a good thought, that during the millennial kingdom, we think of it, oh, this is that glorious time when everything's at peace and there's no sin and everybody believes in Jesus Christ. No, it's not. No, it's not. Otherwise, why is Jesus Christ spoken of ruling with a rod so he can whack sin as soon as it happens? Any rebellion begin to rise up? Whack it with a rod. Right. Because who is locked up at this period? Satan. Satan, because it comes from us. Because even in, all right, there are people who live, I believe, there's people who disagree with me. At the end of the tribulation, right, all the armies are slaughtered. But how about all those people back home who weren't in the army? They're still alive. A lot of them have been killed. Half the world's population is killed. I understand that. But there's still billions of people on the planet, even though all the armies are slaughtered. Everybody doesn't fight in the army. So there are still people with fallen nature who live from the tribulation into the millennial kingdom. How do I know that? Because at the end of the millennial kingdom, there's another revolt against Jesus Christ. Right? We looked at that. I believe that's Ezekiel 38 and 39. There are a lot of people who disagree with me on that. I'm good with that. And so there's another revolt against God. Why? Because sin still exists. Nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in Scripture does it say during the millennial kingdom there is no sin or that it's done away with or that it's done. It's here. Here there's an end to the transgression, but that's for the Jews only. Why it's important to make that distinction. And this salvation in Ezekiel 36 is not for the whole world. It's for the Jews only. So it's important to make those distinctions. And there will be people who say, well, the, the, the Jews, they've been replaced by the church. Oh, really? Then how's Ezekiel going to be true? I just... Uh, 
comprehensive view. We've talked about it a lot of times. Comprehensive. All the scripture has to go into the way that you look at things. Right. And that is precisely the point. Apart from God's divine intervention, even in the midst of Christ reigning with his people on earth in the millennial reign, there will be people who will look at all of that and say, no. Right. Well, Ezekiel 37, the dry, valley of dry bones, where God raises, I believe, the Old Testament saints, stands them on their feet, great army of them. Why? So they can fill the land of Israel because God promises that your cities will be full. Well, that's where the people come from. All the Old Testament saints resurrected. Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones. If it's not that, then what is it? All of these things fit together. And you, you need to think about all of them, which is why here as we come to Chapter 9 and verse 24, we've gotten through one of the six. We finished the transgression. Because the Jews, you saw it there in Ezekiel 36, they follow the ordinances and the statutes of God. That's the lack of rebellion. That's the obedience of the Jews. That's the end of the transgression. Transgression has been imprisoned. It's been set apart. And the Jews now follow after the ordinances of God. The next two to come, related to one another, you've got the, um, to make an end of sin and then to make atonement. And those two things for iniquity, those two things are clearly related, but they're not the same thing. Two different things. If the Lord wills, we'll talk about them next time. Thanks for your time.